We're going to look at God's Word together, so let me invite you to go ahead and open a Bible to the book of Proverbs, chapter 6. We're in the middle of a series walking through the book of Proverbs. It's extremely practical, as you'll find this morning. We're talking about work, everyday work that God has given us to do. All right, Proverbs 6, and it's going to get really practical here, and it's going to, this text kind of meddles with us. It even calls us names. Proverbs chapter 6, beginning in verse 6. Follow along, and I'll just read the first few verses here. Verse 6, go to the ant, you slacker. <laughs> Observe its ways and become wise. Without leader, administrator, or ruler, it prepares its provisions in summer. It gathers its food during harvest. How long will you stay in bed, you slacker? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the arms to rest, and your poverty will come like a robber, your need like a bandit. I was told uh, several years ago that there was a website called Laziness Central. And it was apparently very popular some years ago, and they even had this, this was the motto, quote, dedicated to making the world lazier one person at a time. It's literally the motto on the website. I checked this week, and apparently the website has closed down. Uh, and it's not difficult to surmise what may have happened, right? It turns out producing fresh content for your readership involves work. <laughs> it's, it's not easy to get motivated to do that, and especially when your clientele stops coming to the website because they'd rather do something else than read your articles, right? So there's kind of a, it's a catch-22 situation there. They weren't highly motivated to, to build a movement. Proverbs has much to say to this area of how we do our work, whether we do it with apathy or laziness, whether we engage with diligence, and we're going to come back to Proverbs 6 and the issue of laziness in a moment, but before we get there, I think we want to build out a broader biblical worldview of what Scripture says about work. So we're going to talk about four truths about work that if you understand them, will change the way that you walk into this week, will change the way that you live. Number one, God designed us for work. God designed us for work. So in the opening words of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we meet God. We meet the one true and living God, and he happens to be on the way to work. And that's the opening words of Scripture are, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He is active four words into the text of Scripture, God is active. And then you move into the, ver the second verse of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. And what's happening? The Spirit, the Holy Spirit is hovering over this void, this, this vacant darkness of chaos. And, and what happens after he hovers over it? Six days later, you've got trees and mountains and rivers and oceans and You've got lights hung in the sky during the day and during the night. He's been working. He's been active. He's not just hovering. He's hovering to good effect. There, there's, a, there's a dramatic effect on the space, right? We, we find God with his hands in the dirt in the first couple of chapters in the Bible. He forms the animals out of the dirt. He's got dirt under his fingernails. You're not even out of chapter 1 and chapter 2. And God's hands are in the mud. He's got his sleeves rolled up. 
He's active in creation, forming out of the ground life. And in the crowning act of his creation, we know what did God make? He made man, male and female. In his own image, he created them in that way. And then we see, it's interesting, if you keep reading that narrative in the first couple chapters of the Bible, you see not only that God intended to make man male and female in his image, but what it would look like for them to reflect his image back as a God who is not idle, because God gives them a purpose statement. In chapter 2, verse 15 of Genesis, it's going to be on the screen, the Lord took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work. (laughs) He put him in the garden to work the garden and to watch over the garden. Bear in mind, we're in Genesis 2, which means this is before the fall, before the fall work was instituted and God's idea, right? God's definition of paradise, that's what Eden was. It was paradise. God's definition of paradise wasn't an eternal summer. God's definition of paradise wasn't a perennial vacation. God puts Adam in the garden. He doesn't give him a harp. He gives him a rake. He says, this is your house. Cut the grass. He gives him things to do. He says, tend this, manage this, oversee this, rule this place. And it's not just manual work. It's it's thought work. Adam's first job, opening pages of the Bible are so revealing. Adam's first job was to classify the species. It was science work. It was taxonomy. Here's what it says. Genesis 2, 19, the Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. God himself didn't just directly name all the animals. He said, you name them. Classify them. What's this? This this is a lion. What's this then? It's a lioness, right? He's, He's classifying the world. And whatever the man, he goes on to say, whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. That's a science lover's favorite verse, Genesis 2.19, right? You've got to, in a sense, you read Genesis 2.19, and it reveals that we have a well-preserved copy of the first picture drawn by a human being, and it's this, if we've got it. There, that's, it looks really nice. That turns out to be really old, the classification of the species, right? And Adam isn't the only one who gets the fun of jumping into the world with with his hands and with his mind and with his feet, active, engaging the world. God makes Eve from Adam's side, and then he looks at both of them, the man and the woman, and he gives them a task. This is in your notes. God called Adam and Eve to reflect his glory in two ways. Multiply image bearers through family and rule over creation through work. Remember, that's, that's how it was worded. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and rule over the earth. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. So he's giving them assignments. He's giving them work to do, right? God is pro-work. You're playing the free association game and you say, work. God says, I like it. <laughs> He's a fan of it, right? The the instinct you have, you think about this, maybe this past week or in your everyday life, the instinct that you have to design things, 
to make things, to think deeply about stuff, to fix things, to organize things, to bring order out of chaos. That's that's a God-planted instinct. That's you bearing his image. That's you shining out. It's pointing to the one whose fingerprints are all over you. He, he isn't idle either. He's making things. He's fixing things. He's mending things. So point number one is God designed us for work. Point number two, something is wrong with work. Something is wrong with work. You keep reading the text in in Genesis, and you find in chapter 3, Adam and Eve sinned against God. He had given them one rule. He, he filled the earth with every blessing. He said, eat all of this, enjoy all of this. I'll walk with you face to face in the cool of the garden at night, and we'll talk like friends. Uh, but there's this one tree, and this is just to test your loyalty. There's this one tree, and I don't want you to eat from this, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that, and they started looking at that tree, right? Parents, you maybe have seen this in in parenting. What's the one thing, if you say to your child, this is the one thing you can't touch, what's the one thing she wants to touch? It's that thing. our, Our daughter Ellie, when she was probably three, and we had just gotten a new dishwasher, and um, it had all these buttons, and all of them lit up, unlike the older one, which was kind of like you turn the little dial, and it's, you know, it makes the sound. These are buttons, and they had lights, right? And she's so drawn to that, and she's over there standing, and I just see her. She starts touching the buttons, and I said, no, babe, don't, not, let's not touch the buttons. No joke. So here's the, the panel of buttons. She's looking at me, and she's running her finger around. Her finger is doing a lap around the lights, And I didn't say anything. No joke. You're not going to believe this. No joke. She starts to weave in and out of the lights. Like that, right? We we test the limits. That's exactly what happened in the garden. They said, no thanks. What are you holding behind your back? You're hiding something, and it seems to be great. And they fall, and they sinned against God, and they transgressed his command. And then next thing you know, sin enters, and all this brokenness and damage and mess gets created, and they have the first fight in their marriage, and they're playing the blame game like they've been doing it for years. And then there's fratricide, right? There's not just sibling rivalry. Cain kills Abel, his brother. These are the first two kids on the planet, It is a deeply broken world almost instantaneously, but the fall didn't just affect the family. The fall didn't just affect what would then become generations of dysfunctional families in one way or another. But the fall touched work. It touched everything that was right in the garden and everything. It wasn't wasn't destroyed, but it was distorted. And it was subject to abuse and it was subject to brokenness and misuse. Work as well, this is in your notes, work isn't a result of the fall, but it has been touched by the fall. Work has been touched by the fall. Here are the words of judgment that came after they sinned against God, Genesis 3, 17 to 19. The ground is cursed. Well, that's where they worked. That was the office. The office is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your 
brow. You, you think about that for a second. So, I hope that whatever your vocation is, or whatever it is that you do, whether you get paid to do it or you don't get paid to do it, I hope that the work that you give yourself to brings a sense of joy, a sense of God's pleasure, a sense of purpose, that this matters. Even the small things, they, this matters, and it's rewarding in that sense. But I don't have to be thoroughly acquainted with your area of work to know you've got a unique set of thorns and thistles in your line of work. It's a unique set. It may be different from my own set. Your set's different, but nobody's working in any field in the world that doesn't have sweat involved, metaphorically or literally, and doesn't have thorns and thistles involved, metaphorically or literally. So, so professional athletes face injuries, can't play all season, right? Or you, maybe you've mastered the skills of farming, but guess what? You can't make it rain. There, there's, a, there's an environmental issue that can push back, and it's like two steps forward, but, but three steps back because I can't control the environment in which I do my work. Your computer gets a virus. Maybe, maybe that's it, right? Or somebody above you in your company is threatened by you, and they're making sure the ball doesn't bounce in your direction. There's thorns and thistles all over every line of work that we have in this room that's represented. If you want a, a one-stop shop for everything that was broken by the fall, spend a few hours at the DMV this week, right? I mean, that, what a picture of Genesis chapter 3 the DMV is. Uh, uh, we have a daughter who's supposed to take the, the driver's test pretty soon here, and she's been practicing for all that, right? And you can take her for us and just go experience Genesis chapter 3. The Bible comes alive. You'll walk out of the DMV and you'll be like, what? It's all true. Like the Bible's infallible. It's inerrant. I need a savior. It's all of it. I feel all of it in a profound way. DMV, that, that should be the place where we do our evangelism. We should set up because people are desperate for hope outside the DMV. Hours and hours, it's almost like you walk in the building and they just announce, this is going to be a nightmare. This is going to be a terrible, you're about to have an awful day here. <laughs> All our work brings its unique frustrations in a fallen world. God designed us for work to something is wrong with work three. Something is wrong with us. It's not just the work, it's not just the environment, it's not just the thorns and the thistles, it's Adam. <laughs> it's Eve, it's, it's in us. The, the wise sayings of the Proverbs, I would encourage you to do this. I did this this week and it was really profitable. Read through the book of Proverbs in one sitting and just take it all in and notice what are the things that, that just keep getting hammered. Whereas if you read it one chapter a day, you might not realize, yeah, that is brought up again and again and again. And you'll realize there are these themes that just keeps coming back and touching on them over and over and over. And work is one of them. But one of the things you also notice is that there are, um, there are personification. There's, there's characters involved in Proverbs. There are sort of good guys and bad guys. There, there's a protagonist and there are antagonists, right? There, the protagonists are the ones who are living with the grain of God's design. 
The antagonists are living across the grain of God's design, and so there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. They're trying to go in the opposite direction, and it's not going to work out well for them. And so these two sides, you see, for example, on the, on the side of the good, on the side of wisdom, you have lady wisdom, and she's doing what? She's walking through the streets, and she's saying, simple ones, come and listen to me. Come spend the afternoon with me. Let's talk, and you'll get life when you hang out with me. Lady Wisdom is walking, and she's inviting. Then there's a father, and he's talking to his son. Ten speeches in the first nine chapters of Proverbs. There's Lady Wisdom, there's a father, and then there's the friend. The friend who sticks closer than a brother. The friend whose words might wound, but they're meant to ultimately Heal. So you got Lady Wisdom, and you got a father, and you have a friend. And then on the other hand, there are characters who are not going to inherit the blessings that fall to the wise. And throughout Proverbs, this group falls into four categories the fool, the scoffer, the simple, and the sluggard. The sluggard, or as our text in the Christian Standard Bible translates it, slacker. And this really brings us right back to where we started. So I hope you still got your Bible open. Proverbs 6, we're going to work from there for just a little bit. Proverbs 6, let's look at it together. Verse 6 is often translated, consider the ant, you sluggard. Now, I think sluggard needs some definition and some discussion because it's a word that we don't really use a whole lot. We haven't really used that word since dudes wore tights a couple hundred years ago, you don't really call people, maybe sluggish, but we don't really call people sluggards very often. Anyway, here's, a, here's an approximated definition from Ray Ortland. He kind of builds this out a little bit in his commentary. He says this, what is a sluggard? Think of the way syrup oozes slowly out of a bottle when it's cold. That is the sluggard. Sluggish and slow and hesitant when he should be decisive, active, forthright. His life motto is, don't rush me. The Bible says, as a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. He's lazy, constantly making, I love this word, the soft choice. The soft choice. Losing one opportunity after another, after another, after another, day by day, moment by moment, until he lies there helpless in his wasted life. Let's all admit it. There is a sluggard deep inside each of us. And right here in our passage, beginning in verse 6 of Proverbs chapter 6, you see these two contrasting figures. One is the sluggard and the other is an ant. And he's saying to the sluggard, you need to watch that ant. You need that ant to disciple you because that ant is getting stuff done all day, every day. That ant is making the most of opportunities. The, the ant and the sluggard are set in radical contrast, and it's, but it's not just about output. It's about motivation as well. Now, my wife and I were sitting on a flat rock on a bluff two nights ago, a Friday night, watching the sunset in North Alabama. It was just gorgeous. And while we're sitting on that flat rock at the top of that sheer bluff, we saw a large ant. And dude was busy. I mean, he was, he was, con he didn't just, 
it's like, lay down, man. Look at your phone. Do something. But he's just nonstop in motion, just foraging around, sniffing things, moving his, whatever they call him, antenna. He's just bumping into stuff, looking for things constantly, right? That's, that's what ants have been doing for thousand year, uh, thousands of years, all the way back to Solomon's time. He looked at an ant on a rock bluff somewhere in the Middle East, and the ants do the same thing there. Ants of old did the same thing, his, his ancient ancestors. You might say ancestors. I shouldn't have done that. Was, my kids are going to hate that in the 11 o'clock service. His ancestors have been doing the same thing, right? They're going, they're gathering food, they're constantly foraging, they're moving around. Now, let me just say, it needs to be said, this is not what's addressed in this particular passage. This passage addresses the issue of laziness, but work can break in a number of different ways. Especially in our culture, work can lead to workaholism, where we never leave our work. And we worship our work. We idolize our work. Maybe it's not the work itself. Maybe it's the paycheck that comes. Maybe it's not the paycheck itself. Maybe it's the experiences that are afforded by the paycheck. Maybe it's the power, the influence, the title, the thing that's written on the desk or on the door. Whatever it might be, but we can worship our work. The problem that's inside of us can go in all kinds of unhelpful and unhealthy directions. That's why the command in Scripture to Sabbath is meant to be a counterbalance to that other problem. It's a built-in six days. It's a command I'm not advising you. Six days shall you do all your work. And on the seventh, you put your tools down and you rest and you remember the work that was done for you by God. But come back to that six days. That's what the lazy person struggles with. Six days? I got to work six days? Days? How about Sabbath six days? Work one day. And God said, work six days. Sabbath one day. God's pro-work. He's pro-diligence. He likes it, right? And, but notice the ant in verse 7. He's motivated. He doesn't need prodding. Verse 7 says, without leader, administrator, or ruler. Nobody's barking orders. Nobody's cracking whips. It prepares its provisions in summer and gathers its food during the harvest. Here's the thing, friends. When we're lazy, when we're living against the grain of God's wisdom, we do two things. The first is in your notes here. We shirk responsibility. We shirk responsibility. Look at verse 9. How long will you stay in bed? My mom used to ask me that question when we were teenagers. How long? And she would quote, like a door turns on its hinges. There you go, right? How long are you going to stay in bed? It, Proverbs 24 uses that, like a door on its hinges, the lazy person turns in their bed. The lazy person in Proverbs 24 is hinged to the bed. A part of the bed, part of the apparatus of the bed itself is this person, they're stuck there. They move, but they only move left and right. They roll over this way, and then they roll over that way. That is the full expression of all their motion, rolling and rolling, back and forth. And if you get on this person's case, and if you say, you're hinged to the bed, you need to get up, how long are you going to stay in bed? Verse 10, what does he say? 
I just need a little. I just need a little more. A little sleep. A little slumber. I'm not going to sleep the day away. I just need a little bit more, right? That's the, that's the talk. That's the self-talk of the lazy. All I need is just a little bit more. So what happens? He loses the day by inches. It's not a pre-commitment at the beginning of the day that I'm going to hit snooze 10 times. It's one at a time. And it'll be one at a time tomorrow that I hit it 10 times. And one at a time the next day that I hit it 10 times. You lose the day by inches and opportunity is squandered. And then he doesn't see the problem until it's too late. You see verse 11. What's the problem? Here comes poverty. This is obviously not saying or suggesting that all poverty in the world is related to laziness. That is not the case. But in this particular case, he's saying some of it is. There is an avoidable poverty in this particular case that is broken by diligence, that is broken by a biblical work ethic. He says in verse 11, poverty will come like a robber. You keep sleeping there all day, and your need will come on you like a bandit. He's, he's, the lazy person doesn't understand something that Proverbs lives in this world, the world of cause and effect the world of sowing and reaping. And part of shirking responsibility involves making excuses that that's not the way of the world, that there is no sowing and reaping, there is no cause and effect. This is just, these are just mysteries that the ball is always bouncing away from me. It's just a total mystery that this is happening. And the Proverbs here is saying maybe it's not a mystery. Proverbs 26, 13, the slacker says, there's a lion in the road, a lion in the public square. I, I don't know about you, but I am at my most creative when I don't want to do something. I can reach, just suddenly I can reach for the most fanciful reasons why this is not a good thing for me to do right now. I should put it off right now. I should not get involved in this at all. When you, it's like when you become a teenager, this gift, this dark gift falls to you. This ability to make impromptu, creative excuses <laughs> for why not to work. But, but this guy here in Proverbs 26, he's breaking all records, right? He's reached master Jedi levels of lazy. Why? Because you listen to his dad, if you will, say, cut the grass. And what does he say? Lions. The lions. Right, that is incredibly creative. My kids have never, have never pulled the lion's one, right? It's like, son, we live in Inverness. We, son, <laughs> that's really not an issue, right? But he's, he's hinged to his bed and he'll reach for anything he possibly can. It's really dangerous out there. I mean, sometimes rocks get thrown out of that lawnmower. It hit me in the head and, I mean, Goliath went down that way, right? I mean, all kinds of creative ways, right? He, he's hinged to his bed. He won't start things. He won't start the day, but not only will he not start, he won't finish in Proverbs. Sometimes he gets off to a decent start, but he can't follow through. He's unable to complete tasks. Proverbs 26, 15, here's another verse. Listen to this one. <clears throat> the slacker, that's the sluggard, buries his hand in the bowl. He is too weary to bring it to his mouth. There's satire being used here, right? Obviously, this is a dramatic 
a picture using hyperbole, exaggerated language on purpose. But here's the picture of the lazy. He's got this food. He's sitting. He's already at the table. The food has been placed in front of him. The spoon has been placed next to the, the bowl. He buries the spoon in the bowl. And that took so much effort to bury that spoon that he's exhausted and he just has to drop the spoon. He can't bring the spoon back to his mouth. It's a dramatic picture of how he just will not follow through, even when it means you get to eat. It's a fundamental idolatry of laziness. He's just taking the soft option over and over, shirks responsibility by making excuses, shirks responsibility by resisting correction. That looms large in the book of Proverbs. The sluggard resists correction, Proverbs 26, 16, the very next verse after the one I just read. A sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven who can answer sensibly. I, um, I knew a young man years ago uh, who refused to get a job, and he would tell you why. I mean, he, would, he would say this to me and other people who were walking with him and discipling him. He was in our college ministry, but he was, he was an older uh, young adult, single, and um, he would tell you why he wouldn't get a job. His words that he repeated so many times, three words, I'm management material. I'm managing, he actually said those words, and I thought, I've never heard an actual manager talk like that. I'm management material, and, I've, and I'd say to him, he was a close friend, I'd just get in his face, I'd say, listen, man, I've never seen you manage anything, like nothing. He, he seemed really intelligent, he was a philosophical kind of guy, but he wouldn't work. An internship comes along, don't want the internship, right? Entry-level job position in a great company, don't want the entry-level job. I need to be a manager, I'm management material, and no matter what you said to him, he knew better. Friends, don't, um, don't mistake biblical satire, which is edgy, which is toothy, with light-hearted humor. The book of Proverbs is very serious about laziness. Laziness is sin. Laziness is disobedience to God. Laziness is squandering our gifts and callings as image bearers. Laziness is, is being derelict and serving our neighbor and our community. La laziness is a breach of the creational mandate stamped on you when God made you to exercise dominion and bring about flourishing in the world through everyday ordinary work. It's a resistance. It's, I'm not going to do that. The, the, the lazy person, again, read through the book of Proverbs in one sitting. The lazy person isn't free. He's in bondage. She's in bondage. To what? Ease. In bondage to the idol of ease. So let me ask you, in what area... Are you taking the easy road? Maybe, maybe you're just killing it in your vocational work or your paid work, but you're negligent at home, negligent in your relationships, negligent in your schoolwork. Great when you show up and punch in, but negligent in other areas. It could be anything. Think about your vocation. Are you all in? 
Are you on time? You serve as if you're serving the Lord himself and not just human employers. Think about your marriage. Does your marriage need work? Does it need TLC? What is God calling you? Where is God calling you in your life to cast aside passivity and apathy? Maybe our laziness is expressed in a primary way in our spiritual life. Maybe we're really good, really faithful on the on the job, but we're not maintaining an ongoing, vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ by engaging in his word and being disciplined in prayer and fellowshiping with his people regularly, weekly, right? What might it be? Maybe, maybe there's no area of, of volunteer ministry and service to your brothers and sisters in the church. This is something for kids to think about. What would it look like? What, it look, what would it look like, kids, for, for you to fight against laziness this week? What would that mean for your room? What would that mean in terms of your readiness to help around the house? What would it mean in how you address your school subjects when you start your school year next year? You're going to give it all you have and let your mind be used by God and trained by God for service in his world. See all of life as worship before God. We shirk responsibility. The second one under this point is we miss opportunity. We miss opportunity. Sometimes laziness shows up in different forms, so we're too passive. Uh, there, was a, there was a guy who was a close friend of mine in college, and I knew that he liked Paula, my wife, Paula. Um, I didn't know if she liked him yet. I barely knew her. I knew him. I knew he liked her. I didn't know what she thought, but I wasn't going to wait. So I asked first, which means in this particular case, I won. (laughs) The mystery of all mysteries is she said yes, and my friend Kyle looked great in his tuxedo when he walked my grandparents down the aisle at my wedding. There's a, there's a call to diligence, to not being passive, not being apathetic. Proverbs isn't afraid to talk about that. It's not afraid to talk about responsibility and effort in the playing out of God's purposes. Listen to this, Proverbs 24. The sluggard, the slacker, does not plow during planting season. At harvest time, he looks and there's nothing. It's like he's, he's looking and he's scratching his head and he's saying, why is there nothing? And Proverbs is saying, oh yeah, you didn't plant anything. (laughs) There there was no effort during planting season. There's not going to be any yield during harvest season. The Proverbs is is just saying this, this this isn't rocket science. This is how the world works. Wise up. I'm so glad we have a Bible that talks to stuff like that. Everyday stuff, right? Proverbs anchors everything in the fear of the Lord and trusting in God. We've talked about that for the last three weeks. Yes, yes, and you'll hear more of that yes next week. But Proverbs, friends, doesn't only teach us how to directly engage with God in our prayers. It teaches us to set an alarm clock and get up. It, it teaches business owners to do fair work, to not jimmy with the numbers and the weights and the scales to where somebody thinks they're buying something that's 16 ounces because the scale says 16 ounces, but you tinkered with the scale and they're actually only getting 13 ounces of product. And that's why he says that, that kind of stuff is detestable to the Lord. 
he says in Proverbs. It's very practical about work and false weights and false advertising. We have a book that tells us how wisdom connects to our everyday lives. I love this quote from Dorothy Sayers. She says, the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him to not be a drunk and disorderly in his leisurely hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this. The very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. You see that? Your work matters. Look, studies show statistically that our vocation is going to take up 90,000 hours of the average adult life. 90,000 hours. The question is, does Christianity touch those 90,000 hours or just these hours, what we're doing right now? Does it touch what you're going to do tomorrow morning? The everyday work that you're going to do as an image bearer designed by God and gifted with abilities and skills? It all matters. Not just the spiritual stuff. It all matters. This leads to the next point. Number four, God redeems our work. God redeems our work. Remember what we saw in the beginning, that we're designed by God to work. He made us so we could join him in his work, in his world. It's not an add-on to our calling. It's essential. It's a vital means by which we reflect him in the world. This is in your notes. Without work, we don't flourish. There's a lot of talk about human flourishing in our culture today. Without work, we don't flourish. You and I don't. The world doesn't. The community doesn't flourish without it. Here's the, here's the thing. You know, God didn't take work from us just because we messed it up. And neither does he when, when you become a Christian, when you follow Jesus and put your trust in him, he doesn't say, hey, now your ordinary work, no longer. Don't, don't do that anymore. Quit your normal job and do this spiritual work over here. Um, that's not what happens. He fills us with his spirit. He gives us a new motivation and then he sends you right back to the office where you were before to do it with new spring, with new zest, with new sense of purpose and calling under God. This is what Colossians 3, 23 and 24 says. The Apostle Paul, whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You get rewarded. Whatever you're doing, you do it as unto the Lord, and you get rewarded? And then it says, you serve the Lord Christ. It's talking about ultimate service. There's a boss above your boss who's watching our work and our attitude. Friends, all of Scripture connects. There's one big story in the Bible that God made us, to reflect his glory. We rebelled against him. In a sense, we said, I want my own company. I don't want to work in dad's company. I want to be my own boss. That's what they said in the Garden of Eden. We sinned against God. Everything was broken. Every kind of distortion came pouring into the world. And since that time of the fall, you and I and every other human being on the planet is running to all the wrong stuff to be satisfied. We're running to money and power and ease and promiscuity and religious self-effort. And we've been trying to fill a void that we can't fill with more time at the office. We can't fill the void with more time on vacation, endless vacation. We're never going to satisfy it. Only in Christ. 
Only in Christ is there a solution to what's wrong with me. Only in Christ is there a solution to what's wrong with the world. God sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, came into the world, died in our place, the death that we deserve to die, and what did he say when he was hanging on the cross? It is finished. Friend, the most important work that was ever done in this world was not done by you. The most important work that will ever be done in this world will not be done by you. It's a work completed at the cross in your place. That's why he ascended on high and sat down. He's, he's done. The priest never got to sit down. There were no chairs in the temple. They had to work constantly because sins were always there, right? They had constant job security. The people keep sinning. We keep offering sacrifices. But then this one comes, makes the sacrifice, and sits on a chair in heaven because he's done. His work is finished for all who trust him, all who repent and believe and turn to him in faith. There's hope, there's a future, there's new beginning. You can have a new beginning. This morning, God can begin to work something new in your heart and make you a new person and give you new motivation, give you new eyes to see ways to love God and serve your neighbor, to serve others in his name. I love what Paul says in Ephesians 4.28. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands. This is in the New Testament. So that he has something to share with anyone in need. If you just leave that on the screen for a moment there. So notice the unbroken progression in these words. The thief is to no longer steal, but that's not the end of the verse. Instead, he does honest work with his own hands, but that's not the end of the verse. There's a so that, there's a purpose for the work, and look at it, so that he has something to share with anyone in need. We're not the end. Creating financial security for my own life, my own immediate family is not the end of the story. We do honest work with our own hands so that we have something to share with anyone and need. It's a life of generosity. It's created by a life of diligence. So two things, two takeaways, very practically. First, write this down. Don't discount your work. Don't discount your ordinary work. This is one of the reasons that we, we helped launch Work Faith Birmingham some years back. It's all about empowering adults to enjoy God's design through work. By the way, if you, if you don't know how can I get involved, how can I step into the workforce, just find Work Faith Birmingham display out there in the lobby, beginning conversation that way. You think about it, almost everybody in the Bible, almost all the figures, big figures in the Bible had normal jobs, sort of so-called secular jobs. Jacob was a rancher. Joseph was a government official. Moses was a shepherd. David was a military and national leader. Daniel was a prime minister. Lydia had a textile business. Paul was a tent maker. You know who was the first person who was filled with the Spirit of God in the Bible? His name was Bezalel, and he was a construction foreman. And he was filled with the Spirit of God so he could build a temple. None of your service in Christ's name goes unnoticed, friends. All of life is worship for the Christian. Number two, join the family business. Join the family business. I have a mantelpiece in my office. I think we've got a picture of it. 
that's in my office, that mantelpiece. So it's not anything super fancy. It's kind of dinged up over the years. Um, when I was a kid, I remember my dad saying to me, I was probably, I don't know, seven, six or seven. And my dad said, come with me to the, the, the lumber yard. And I had never been to the lumber yard before. And I, I was really excited. We hopped in the car. We went to the lumber yard and we walked in. And just, there's just that wonderful smell, right, of just lumber. It was fantastic. And walked in and we looked across and we saw that piece of wood. And it was just sitting there. And dad said, what do you think about that one? And I said, I think it's awesome. That's a huge piece of wood. Let's go, let's go get it. We went and got it and we brought it home. And we sanded it together and we... We stained it together, and then we hung it over the fireplace in the house. And then years later, I bought that house from my mom. And we lived in that house with that same mantelpiece right there. And then when we sold that house to move to Birmingham in 2012, I asked the new owner. I thought about it after we had done all the paperwork, and I said, I'm sorry to hoist this on you at the end here. It is kind of dinged up. Can I have that mantelpiece? I said, I know, I know it's not fancy, but, but we worked on that project together, my dad and I. Christian friend, you think about work that way. Think about work this way. You're, in a sense, you're going to get a call in the morning. Tomorrow Monday, Monday morning, first thing, you're going to get a call right when you wake up, and it's going to be the Lord. And you know what he's going to say? He's going to say, come with me to, to work. Join me in work. And through the seemingly ordinary tasks of your day, God himself is going to be inviting you to do the kinds of things he's doing, the kinds of things he does, teaching and making and fixing and mending and blessing and sharing. And in your ordinary ways, you're going to be reflecting the image of this glorious God. You think about the, the one who called us to follow him famously said this, he said, my father has always been working, and so have I. And may that be true of us. Look, friends, let's not, let's not work this week for a paycheck. Let's not work this week for our own glory, for our own name. Let's work gladly, gratefully as unto the Lord.